Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Yes, that's right. It's Annie and Kim this morning. It's a lovely day outside. No, it's really cold, actually. It is really cold. I can't... Well, I'm quite happy because the sun hates me. So I'm quite happy for it to stay cold. Yeah, well, it's really funny because we we all stripped off uh, earlier in the week and then the next day it was, ha, 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 you fools. <laughs> it was so cold. I just, you just always manage to be caught without an umbrella or without a hat. Like you would have to have a bag full of, you know, like in play school, how they have yeah, that yeah, bag full right. of all the <laughs> dress-ups for the different weather. That's what Melbourne is actually that's, like. That's what it's like right at this moment in spring, a genuine spring. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and it's 3CR 855 on the AM dial. But you know that, of course, because you're listening to us. Yes. We've had several comedians point this out to us, you foolish people, telling everybody what they're listening to. Well, maybe, you know, there's that generation who don't really know how to use analogue radio. So maybe they've (laughs) accidentally stumbled across something wonderful. Yeah, exactly. And they might want to replicate it. Yes, exactly. Well, today we've got a a bundle of stuff to contribute to the uh, general sway of uh, political wheaty eating. This breakfast morning, uh, today uh, we're going to continue uh, what I started in Stick Together, which was uh, the uh, a little bit more from the uh, Union Activist and History Conference. It was terrific, wasn't it? Yeah, it was wonderful. It's um, I think it's not every, unfortunately, it's not every week or month that you get a conference of union militants and actual union militants. Yes, that's exactly right. Not bureaucrats. Yeah, and it was. The conversation was uh, about how uh, workers need to push back because uh, the law has has become so draconian that it's very difficult to actually uh, express the needs of the working people in the present paradigm, basically. Yeah, my dad always says, you know, that... If it's effective, they'll make it illegal. Well, he's right. Prophetic. Anyway, so we decided that uh, we'd go back to Polar Fresh and uh, the other speech that was held at the um, Union Activist and History Conference. Uh, Ryan Laws, who was a major organiser of that strike, uh, which was very effective. It was a three-day strike at Polar Fresh, which is the epicentre of cold storage for coals. Uh, and it uh, he explains the uh, process towards that effective strike within this world of uh, 
actually quite uh, draconian uh, workplace laws. Mm. That's so. That's an interesting thing. We're going to uh, go through that uh, this uh, uh, in the first half hour. And uh, if you've been listening to Three CR, you'll realise that over the next forty days, like forty days and forty nights in the wilderness. No, it's not that. It's a forty day celebration of uh, the past of Three CR broadcasting, and there's been these terrific. Uh, uh, it's a three-parter of coming out of Stick Together, which is uh, reflections on the uh, uh, 1998 uh, Wharfie strike. And we're going to play the third reflection. This is uh, a great uh, series that was created by Colin McNaughton, uh, who used to produce Stick Together. In fact, it's available on CD. But uh, and uh, if you go into the MU, uh, MUA offices down in uh, West Melbourne, you'll be able to buy one. There you go. Yeah, there's a there's a wonderful history of oral histories, I think, on the waterfront, particularly with waterside workers. That's right. And uh, so we're going to play uh, that. And unlike the other breakfast shows on 3CR, we're special because it's Saturday. And uh, even though the introduction says that it's uh, 30 minutes every day for 40 days, uh, from 8 to 8.30, that 3CR is going to be going down history lane, we're only doing 20 minutes, and that is because Uncle Kevin's This Is The Week That Was must be played at 8.20. So there you go. It will be there. Don't worry. Don't run away screaming because your favourite man has been axed. He hasn't been. He'll be there. And then uh, half an hour later, we're going to, after in the last half hour, we're going to go through a little bit of uh, discussions with people. Our... Our correspondents on the ground, one in England, in London, and one in Chicago, in America, to give us a little bit of an update on the political situation for the forces of good and evil in the political realm. It appears that they've all gone nuts over the Atlantic. <laughs> yes. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 3CR Community Radio You got it right, you've won a giraffe uh, We're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. And so you are on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and we're going to go straight ahead with uh, Polar Fresh, Ryan Laws. He's one of the major organisers. He works at Polar Fresh. He's a delegate. He's a delegate. For the NUW. Yep. A couple of months ago, uh, warehouse workers at a warehouse called Polar Fresh out in Melbourne's western suburbs went on strike for three days. Now, Polafresh is uh, a large warehouse of about 700 workers, and they handle all of the refrigerated goods for Victoria and Tasmania for coals. So any produce, milk, cheese, butter, anything like that uh, that needs to be refrigerated at a coal supermarket comes from our warehouse. Uh, 
which pretty immediately tells you that there's quite an enormous amount of industrial power there, which, which we'll get onto in a second. Uh, now, PolarFresh uh, uh, has been around for about 10 years. Uh, a cost-cutting uh, measure by Coles to outsource to a company like PolarFresh to be able to get an agreement that was sub-standard uh, uh, as far as wages and conditions. Now, the, the union at PolarFresh is quite established. The NUW is quite established there. And it's been there it, before the strike about six months ago. It was at about 65, 70 percent of the workforce. But the place had never struck before. The cold storage industry uh, hasn't struck under the NUW's tenureship, as far as a warehouse this big, I'm led to believe. Uh, and it hasn't really struck since the 80s. So that means that the workers there are very raw, very inexperienced with striking and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I think that whenever you put that in context of what we were actually able to achieve, uh, it really highlights again how impressive it was. We struck for three days. Uh, we shut down four warehouses in those three days. And we managed to win one of the most impressive agreements uh, in, the, in, in, in the industry. Um, we got a wage rise that's on par with what the CFMEU gets every year. Uh, we're able to win uh, 50 new permanent full-time jobs, another 50, uh, 70 uh, agency jobs, conversions, uh, conversion clauses in the EBA, all this sort of stuff. Going into the strike, the EBA expired in June this year. Leading up to the strike, we very much had the orientation that we didn't just want to accept whatever uh, the bosses were willing to offer us. We weren't thinking oh, we might try to trade off a couple things to be able to get a bit higher wages or we might try to do this or that or we might try to make concessions or we just want to break even, we just want to stop the company from taking anything away from us and they did want to take a lot away from us. Their first log of claims was that they wanted to remove all restrictions on labor hire and I think it was like a 1% pay rise uh, each year. We went into it thinking not, we want to get one of the best contracts, one of the best, uh, some of the best wages and the best conditions in the industry. We want to be leaders in the industry. Uh, the most important claim that we wanted to fight for was $30 an hour, which is an increase of about $3 an hour from where we were. So this is about a 12.5% pay rise in the first year. Uh, in addition to that, we wanted to get rid of all labor hire altogether, as well as about 20 other claims, uh, uh, 20 other improvements in our conditions on the site. So we didn't have the orientation that we just wanted to break even. We wanted, the, we wanted to come forward massively. Um, and so over the six months or so leading up to the strike, we did everything we could to try to prepare the workers for that. So we put out leaflets explaining uh, what the conditions were. We put out a leaflet that explained uh, how much profits Coles makes, which is nearly $2 billion a year, as well as how much profits West Farmers make, which is over $4 billion a year. West Farmers owns Coles. It's sort of a big conglomerate uh, sort of corporation. Uh, we'd put out any time that managers or, or anyone else would spread a rumor about, about, you know, if we strike, we'll shut down the warehouse or whatever. We'd put out another leaflet. We had mass meetings uh, every week or two, really, in, in the lead-up to the strike in order to try to explain to the workers where the negotiations were at. Uh, how things were going, why it was so important uh, that we all had to stick together, that we had to be prepared to fight, and that we all wanted to come forward massively. And I think this is really important because a lot of workers uh, were pretty demoralized after the last EBA negotiations, where they didn't feel like uh, they had gotten much out of the negotiations. And the place came very close to striking, but it didn't quite get over the line. Uh, and so a lot of people uh, were very keen and were very enthusiastic. So over a period of six months of not only campaigning for the, uh, around the EBA and around our log of claims, 
but also a series of other things. At one point in time, management tried to bring me up for disciplinary uh, proceedings because we put out a petition uh, that said basically we wanted to get one of the most tyrannical managers on afternoon shifts sacked. They tried to bring me up on disciplinary me measures, and Kurtley and Paul back there and a series of other the, of the other union delegates uh, wrestled up about 50 or 60 workers to go up to the uh, first interview with me, and it was a massive show of defiance, chanting "Touch one, touch all." Things like that, it, trying to push, uh, you know, trying to push things, trying to, uh, you know, to sort of change the the culture in the warehouse, trying to, to push the workers to do more. All of this led uh, up to, um, in the week, uh, the couple weeks before the actual strike, a 94% vote to take lawful industrial action, unlimited uh, industrial action. The fact that we got that vote was incredibly impressive, and it's one of the best, it's, no, no other warehouse of that size has gotten a vote like that, and it really showed uh, where things were at for the workers. Before the strike, the atmosphere in the place was just electric. One of, the, one of the things that we started chanting was touch one, touch all, and so people would drive by in their lollops in the warehouse to chant touch one, touch all. Every conversation in the lead up to the strike was about striking and was about the EBA. Now, on the night before, a couple, it might have been the night before, a couple of nights before, I just uh, currently here uh, managed to get a meeting on afternoon shift. And the reason why uh, he called this meeting, and we had several meetings like it on day shift as well, is that whenever the company found out that we were going to strike, they started bringing up all the workers into meetings upstairs to try to scare them out of striking. Uh, they tried to intimidate the permanent workers. It didn't work. In fact, one of the meetings, they said that you're going to lose $300 a day if you walk out, which isn't actually true. But anyway, the workers said, well, you're going to lose $300,000 a day if we walk out. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, the worker was wrong. It's actually closer to $3 million for every day that, that we were out on strike. Um, and so in order to try to, but one of the things they did do is they threatened all the agency workers. There's quite a large pool of agency workers who have substandard conditions, very insecure workers, uh, and threatened them to say that if you strike, then, then we'll fire you. Currently managed to get a meeting going on afternoon shift in order to try to get everybody to show support uh, for, for the agency workers and to try to, again, try to, you know, Managers can scare you when you're in small groups and whenever you're by yourself, but when you get all the workers together into one large group, they all of a sudden don't seem so scary. So there you go. Very interesting stuff, isn't it? Yeah, great stuff. I mean, it shows you what can still be done in this environment yeah, if you fight for it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that, that's really, that was the issue that uh, was uh, brought up at the activist conference, the Union Activist Conference. Uh, it was uh, quite uh, the landscape that people are in at the moment in terms of uh, working uh, is constantly being curtailed. Uh, and it's pointed out that uh, this has happened since the accord. Uh, it was uh, arranged so that uh, the idea was that uh, we, there would be, um, it was intended that it should curtail uh, union. So the union becomes the industrial cop on the beat, yeah. in a sense, in some unions. Yeah, well, no, that's that. I mean, from the eighties, from the perspective of the, how the pro propaganda was per portrayed, it was supposed to be this uh, idea that uh, the workers and the boss class were working together, were at the table, could negotiate uh, all the different elements that are required and important to both classes, right? That's mm. what, the, yeah. And so, if you got rid of all these uh, strike days, etc., you would be uh, pushing the economy ahead, 
and it was mutually beneficial, right? And I can remember actually thinking at the time that uh, uh, the fascinating thing was that the working class is big-hearted. It's big-hearted. It's prepared to negotiate. Mm. It's prepared to negotiate. Well, it was made, it's now become mightily clear. And there were voices at the time that said, don't trust them because the devil they're don't change. <laughs> the devil changes you. That's exactly right. And it was fascinating. Um, the, uh, the, and, we, and it's been proven. Uh, over time, they don't want EBAs. They don't want to negotiate. They don't want to uh, have a system, a systematic OHS, because that would mean that people actually have to take time to make sure a workplace is safe. No, they want to make sure that individuals take it on board that it was their fault that they lost their leg or they fell down thirteen flights, thirteen levels, and died. And I mean. Like up in Queensland when those two blokes were in that pit and were crushed by cement. And did you know that apparently there were no witnesses to that happening? Now, how can two people be down a pit with two big concrete slabs dangling and not have anybody surveying it at the same time? Well, didn't the CFMEU say that there was someone who had actually walked taken themselves off the job because they were sure someone was going to die on the yeah, site? Yeah, they did the Friday before. They, they did. They were, they, in fact, that person was quoted as saying, I've never worked off at a job before uh, this, but I was really seriously worried. Well, boom, boom. There you go. You're on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, and uh, maybe we'll hear the end of uh, what Ryan has to say. So the strike happens. We managed to, and after these meetings, I think that really pulled the agency workers in behind us, and we all went out. When the strike started, we originally, we originally were going to start at 6 o'clock in the morning, but uh, the night shift workers weren't having it. They were told to load the trucks on the night before, and they said, fuck you, we're going to have a meeting and walk out uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the afternoon shift workers then came in and joined them, came in off shift, about 40 afternoon shift workers, including Kirtley here, came in off shift to join. So it actually started about 2 o'clock in the morning. So the strike happens. We managed to, and after these meetings, I think that really pulled the agency workers in behind us, and we all went out. When the strike started, we originally, we originally were going to start at 6 o'clock in the morning, but uh, the night shift workers weren't having it. They were told to load the trucks on the night before, and they said, fuck you, we're going to have a meeting and walk out uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the afternoon shift workers then came in and joined them, came in off shift, about 40 afternoon shift workers, including Kirtley here, came in off shift to join. So it actually started about 2 o'clock in the morning. By the time Kath and I got there, it was 4 o'clock, and the picket line was already well and truly established. For the next three days, uh, the workers at Polar Fresh put up a heroic struggle, um, stopping the trucks, fighting the scabs, uh, you know, show, you know, showing support for each other in every possible, every conceivable way. Uh, it was all there. Everything that you talk about when you talk about the working class when they're moving uh, was on full display at this picket line. I think one of the most impressive, probably the most impressive thing that we did was the secondary pickets, the secondary boycotts. One of the things the company tried to do was whenever they found out that we were striking, they'd obviously been preparing for months for it. 
they set up a whole scab network of other warehouses all over the city, about five or six other warehouses in the city, as well as uh, in New South Wales and South Australia as well. They did this to try to get around the strike, so they emptied the entire warehouse of everything. All the stock was gone, all the equipment, all the loaders and the forklifts and the, and the MHE, everything was taken on the back of a truck in order to send out to these scab warehouses in order to try to keep production going. <coughs> this meant that the only way we could effectively strike uh, was if we shut down these other warehouses, which is exactly what we did. On the first day, we shut down Swires. The workers set up picket lines, so basically you grab a couple cars full of workers, drive out to these other warehouses, and set up picket lines, which would stop any truck from going through. Any truck that wanted to go in, we tell the drivers, you're not allowed to go in or out unless uh, you show us the manifest in your truck uh, to see what, what stock you're actually carrying. If you're carrying anything that was, would be going to Coles or would be going to the, to the Polar Fresh shed, we wouldn't allow any of the trucks through. Uh, we wouldn't allow any scabs through these picket lines. Eventually, the company started writing fake manifests which is uh, completely illegal, um, in order to show us, in order to get these trucks out of the picket, out of the, through the picket lines, and then they'd bring out the real manifest if they got pulled over by the cops or whatever. Uh, so then we'd say, well, we want to inspect the back of your trucks. Uh, we came to find out afterwards that all of this on our part is illegal. We're not actually allowed to look at any manifests. We're not allowed to, you're not allowed to open the truck in between stores, in between the warehouse and the store, which we did on a routine basis. <laughs> Um, and basically the cops were in a position where they started actually helping us. They were like, look, if you want to get out of this place, you better just open the back of the truck and let them have it. <laughs> I think it's really uh, striking how different um, the cops can treat, you know, striking unionized warehouse workers than, you know, your average student protests. They're very accommodating at times. Um, we, uh, even one of the sheds was on the other side of the city in Costas, it was in Clayton. And so we still managed to get about 40 or 50 workers in cars to drive out to Clayton to shut that warehouse down. So it was incredibly participatory. It was incredibly, the workers were, uh, you, know, you know, hundreds of workers were coming to the picket line every day in order to try to fight uh, for each other and for, for better wages and conditions. I think one of the other things that was really demonstrated on this strike uh, is the way uh, often the leading militants on the picket line that would, that would bolster people up, the ones that wanted to push hardest as far as not letting any drivers through or any trucks through, the ones that were taunting the managers the most on the picket line whenever they tried to get through, um, were uh, the women of the warehouse. It's about, I'd say, maybe 15 to 20 percent women, and if anything, they were overrepresented on the picket line. I think they were probably more involved, uh, sort of relative uh, uh, to the men. And some of the best leaders and some of the best militants on the picket line were women. I think as well, it's an incredibly diverse warehouse. There's workers from all over the world, from Samoa, from New Zealand, the Philippines, India, uh, North Africa, uh, all over the place. And yet any idea of uh, you know, racism or you know, tension between different nationalities was actually at times explicitly and intentionally rejected. At one point in time, one white worker tried to say some racist things about the security guards and the workers actually had to go at him because, you know, the security guards are their friends and the security guards are, uh, you know, uh, international. So really it was, you know, the workers feeling the sense that they all had to come together meant that they had a, made conscious decisions at times to reject any form of raci racism or nationalism. The strike itself, but also I think especially in addition to the secondary pickets was absolutely devastating for the companies. Some of the pictures that you might have seen of, of empty store shelves, some of those pictures were taken on the first day of the strike. You know, we thought that it might take a few 
uh, you know, a week or more for, for us to start to have an impact. On the first day, the stores were already running out of stock. On the second day, huge gaps were opening up. We were getting pictures in from all over the state of empty store shelves. Uh, and on the second day of the strike, the company uh, then wanted to come and negotiate with us. I don't want to take up too much more time, but basically I think there's a few important things um, to, that we should take out of it. I think one is that the working class isn't dead, it isn't gone, there's nothing wrong with it. It's still there and it still has an enormous amount of industrial power. I think especially in our industry and logistics, the fact that everything in a Coles refrigerator comes out of one warehouse in Victoria gives you an enormous amount of power and I think you can start to extrapolate from that, well what if all three of the major Coles DCs in Victoria had come out? Uh, what if all six of the major Coles and Woolworths DCs all came out at the same time? You'd have an enormous amount uh, of industrial power. And it's not just, it's not just this, it's every, like just in time, lean production these days, you know, the entirety of capitalism relies on finer and finer, uh, you know, time frames in which you get product out. So it means that workers uh, objectively have a huge amount of power. Uh, and I think that it also demonstrated that workers are still capable of fighting. That whenever a lead's given, whenever you know, they see an interest in themselves in fighting, and whenever they think they can actually come forward out of it, they're still capable of doing it. And I think in that fight you can you know, see all the shit of society. There are plenty of Muslim workers on that picket line. I didn't hear, hear or see any of the shit that people have been you know, having rammed down their throats for, for 15 years now about uh, Muslims uh, and other migrants, you know, it was all rejected in order to be able to, to come together for this fight, uh, as well as the way that women, some of the most oppressed sections of the working class, can be the ones that come forward the most and assert themselves in these sorts of situations. I think in order to unleash this capacity, this uh, potential amongst workers, I think there's a few things that need to be done. I think one is that we have to start aiming high again. One of the problems, you know, the more and more the way the union uh, has, the unions across all industries has become more conservative, more bureaucratic, has refused to fight, and has led to decline in membership and militancy and so on. That's meant that we have more and more accepted the parameters of what's acceptable to the bosses, of what's acceptable to them without a fight. Rather than thinking about what our members actually want and doing what it takes to get it, set the bar high, $30 an hour, no labor hire, not you know, 2.5% pay rise just ahead of inflation or CPI and, you know, slightly less labor hire or maybe not so much or whatever. We wanted uh, big goals and that was really what inspired uh, and galvanized people behind it, uh, behind the, the strike. And so I think that requires a reorientation as well about not just what's acceptable to the bosses but what's acceptable legally. The, the reality is that everything that was Use, everything that worked about this strike, everything that was powerful, everything that was decent about it, was pretty much deemed illegal by the second day of the strike, uh, if it wasn't already illegal. The, the secondary pickets, checking the back of the trucks, the picket line at Polafresh was actually uh, made illegal. The, in, unless we're prepared to break the law, then it's going to continually restrain what we're going to be able to do as a union movement. The, the, you know, the conversation needs to be how, where, and when you break the law, not whether you have to, uh, because it's quite clear that you have to. Uh, and I think finally what it shows is that there's, we need to rebuild that layer of rank and file militants, the layer that existed in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, uh, the people who have the experience of, of taking strike action, who have rank and file uh, organization on the floor, on the shop floor, 
people who are capable of standing up to the, to the uh, bosses of the company. I mean, I think one of the things since the strike uh, is that the bosses have come back at us in a pretty hard way. Uh, and a lot of people haven't really known what to do about that. And so rebuilding that experience uh, and that militancy amongst the rank and file is absolutely key to being able to take things forward. And I think that requires politics, to be quite, quite frank. I think that that requires a politics that rejects compromise, that rejects any idea that the workers have to accept concessions. You know, politics that argues that workers are the ones that do all the work. We're the ones that create all the wealth. We're the ones that make society run. We have every right not just to 30 bucks an hour, but 40 bucks an hour, $50 an hour. We have the right uh, to decent and humane working conditions, to job security. We didn't quite get to $30 an hour. We didn't quite get rid of labor hire altogether. But this deal that the workers at PolarFresh won, that they, they put up a heroic struggle to be able to win, went some way to, towards getting there. Hello. Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, Kim. Uh, we are moving straight along to uh, the uh, eight, uh, the um, waterfront dispute, 1998, as part of 3CR's 40th birthday celebrations of Radical Radio. So uh, listen up. 3CRs turn 40, and from Monday, 10th of October, right through to Saturday, 19th of November, we're celebrating. Join us on 3CR Breakfast from 8 until 8.30am, Monday to Saturday, as we delve into our rich 3CR archive and bring you half an hour of historic gems. So start your day with the sounds that built a station. 40 days of groundbreaking audio celebrating 3CR's 40 years of radical radio. Let's start with a reflection by John Higgins, who was Deputy State Secretary of the Victorian MUA during the dispute. What do you say? I mean, it brings a tear to your eye to wake up and you see these goons there with balaclavas and dogs and all that, and you know the history that they are as soldiers. They want you to jump the fence and they want to break people's necks and arms and all that, and the government supported this, the National Farmers Federation supported this, and all this type of thing. They bring these people along to break to break a union of workers traditionally have been fighting for, for conditions and we should make no apologies for that. And that's been supported and we know it was supported. For them to be there and at the end of the day, you know what happened to them? What happened to them? We know what happened to them. They actually looked to the unions to try and help them to get paid out when they lost their jobs anyway. And that to me is just, that's probably ends, ends the, you know, the saga there. And uh, the government, did they give them anything? Of course, they didn't give them anything. They just promised them the world. They said they'd have a job. What right does uh, people like us have to be getting, you know, getting good wages and conditions? You can have their jobs. And, you know, what a disgusting thing to wake up to and a disgusting thing for any government to support and to be, uh, to be a party to. Now become a physical obstruction, and we are now entitled to remove 
save you. If you resist, you may be charged with a fat ginger and a member of the police force in the execution of his duty. Brian Boyd, current Secretary of the Victorian Trades Hall, who at the time of the lockout was Trades Hall's industrial officer, contextualises the dispute in Australia's industrial history. I think the uh, 1998 waterfront dispute will reverberate through industrial history and political history for a long time to come. I would put it in the category of the Clary O'Shea dispute of 1969, which was also tackling head-on industrial relations laws of the time, the penal powers. There is little doubt that it was a major achievement for the Patrick's workers to walk back through the gate on May 7, having found themselves locked out three months previously. Moreover, they walked back in as members of the Maritime Union of Australia, employed by Patrick's and not a labour hire company. Dave Cushion, an official with the MUA, will be followed by Kevin Bracken, who is current secretary of the Victorian branch of the MUA. Yes, it was a victory because the whole intent of that dispute was to finish the MUA. It was, it was specifically about destroying this union. We survived that. We survived when many unions around the world have not under the same sort of a concentrated attack. We took on, if you think about it, the government, the Farmers' Federation, the business community. There was a wide range of people who were against us. But there was a lot of people on our side, and I think society were on our side, and I think we came through. It was a victory. I think it's the first time in the world that a government you know, tried to get rid with big businesses, tried to get rid of a union, and they didn't succeed in it. As to whether we took cuts, yeah, we sure did. There was no doubt the union did take cutting conditions, which some of the conditions which we've come back from, probably one of the main things was a straddle, used to pick up five blokes for three straddles. After the dispute, we drove one man per straddle, and then after a large amount of neck and back injuries, it's actually got back to four men for three machines. So it's you know, not back where it was, but it's, we're getting back there. The unions got recognised you know, by the company. Union meetings with the delegates every month down there. And the union is still a key part at all of Patrick's facilities. So, and the unions has been able to improve the um, enterprise agreements every time since 1998. So, yeah, we took cuts, but we're still there, and that's that's the main thing. If you have a look what happened in the UK, totally de-unionised, and as it is now, it's virtually not a real, hasn't got a real strong presence here. The MUA is here to stay, but it came at a cost. The Patrick's Enterprise Bargaining Agreement, which was entered into after the dispute, saw 450 workers retrenched nationally, the maintenance and cleaning outsourced, and a range of work practices changed. Dave Cushion again. After a dispute like that, you win and you lose, and there were some losses for us, and I think we've spent some time since that regaining our strength. It was a big battle and it took a lot out of us, and I think we've come back. I think we were a stronger union now than we were then. The government hasn't come back at us since then. They've moved on to try other targets. And I think they've learnt some lessons out of it. I think the sort of things you're seeing in the Workplace Relations Act, the more legalistic approach they've taken to trade unions, all the stuff you see in work choices, 
the quasi-police state that they've got overlooking construction. The MUA dispute marks a qualitative shift in the government's legalistic, and I would contend increasingly authoritarian, approach to industrial relations. The central institution in this draconian shift since the MUA dispute has been the Coal Royal Commission. It is inquiry into corruption in the building industry, but really it is a thinly veiled witch hunt trying to destroy the CFMEU building division. The piece de resistance of the government's inquiry into the CFMEU is the recent legislation that specifically targets building workers, union representatives and officials of the union, which gives an individual an instant six months jail term with no right of repeal for anyone who refuses to answer the questions levelled by the inquiry. Coupled with this is a gag on building workers' ability to talk to the media, union officials or even their own families about what they were asked and what happened. The balaclavas and attack dogs in the waterfront in 1998 have transmogrified in the ensuing decade into politically colluded commissions, spies and listening devices on our building sites and special legislation targeting building workers. Dear listener, what started with the wharfies and has over the past few years focused on the building industry is coming to a workplace near you. How its work choices will stop at nothing to destroy organised labour. In preparing this documentary, it became apparent very early on that the only ones who are really willing to talk about the human costs of this dispute are women, especially the wives of wharfies. This is Michelle Faruja, co-founder of Women on the Waterfront. Actually, what's already happened that's unfolded is my husband personally has had a triple bypass through stress. And I know of a lot of the other wharfies that have had heart attacks and stress-related things from it because they just built it up so much and they fought so hard to get back in the gates. It was too much. And the main problem was they were then expected to go back to work and work with scabs. And no matter which way you look at it, a scab is always a scab. And putting them in with the men was the worst thing they could have ever done. These guys are working day to day now still with scabs. And if they say anything or one of the scabs says, that guy's picked on me, they get sacked. All the men are aware of it. When they went in the gate, they were told that there would be nothing said to them. So little by little, they've been moving the scabs around. They've been going into state and they've been bringing interstate ones back into Melbourne, trying to filter them that way, hoping they'd get accepted. But it's following them. So they're still under this pressure. It is a pressure cooker down there. No matter which way they say it, it is. Because the men still have to go and work with these other people knowing what they've done. So they've got that pressure every day. It is difficult. And apart from that, then you look at the side of they've lost all their penalty rates. They've all gone. They work night shifts, as everyone knows. They've got the three different shifts, morning, afternoon and midnight. They don't get paid any extra. They're on a flat weekly rate, regardless of what shift they're on. They work weekends. They don't get paid any extra It's just all the same rate. So they have lost a lot of things that they had. You're listening to 3CR's 40 Days of Radical Radio Special, celebrating 3CR's 40 fabulous years of community radio. The industry, with its reputation of turbulence, seems beset by conflict and misunderstanding. Harsh and unfounded accusations from the daily newspapers and from the government, are common. There were many other casualties, 
and it must be said, also a few winners out of the waterfront dispute of 1998. Not long after the lockout terminated, Peter Reith lost his job. Many of the officials of the MUA who were directly engaged in the dispute also lost their jobs. John Howard lives on, but it remains to be seen for how long. It has been argued that the waterfront dispute put 50 to $100 million on Chris Corrigan's, the boss of Patrick's, bottom line. Corrigan also recently sold Patrick's to Toll for $5.8 billion and walked away with $135 million. He is now moving on buying up controlling shares in P&O and Dubai ports. His vision of a global transport and logistics empire do not seem to have diminished. Regarding changes down at the docks, I asked Michelle to share her thoughts with us. Well, the thing is, it makes it harder for the union to go in there if there's problems. Mm. It makes it harder for the men to complain if there's a problem. There are problems down there. The thing is, it is not a safe environment, no matter what they say. It is not. Accidents will happen. And you've got a company that skimps on things. They had a good system where they would fix When machines broke down, they'd get fixed, they'd go back out. They had a great team that would do all that. Since the changeover, they've got new people in. It's been all subcontracted out to different areas Mm. so that the mechanics that are doing the jobs aren't fully aware of these machines and haven't been working on them for years, whereas the old people were. So there's a problem there. There's just problems everywhere. There really is. I was also able to talk with Big Bird, who was only peripherally involved in the dispute in 98, but now has worked down at the docks for nearly 10 years. I asked him to give us a sense of the changing nature of the work on the waterfront. My job is similar. We're still handling containers. The equipment is a lot better now. Where productivity has moved along a bit. There's quite a few things that, that hold you back. It's not manpower. It's the uh, equipment we have. The equipment now we've got, we're using satellite tracking. I think we've had four or five different issues of software and tracking containers and, and how to stow ships and whatnot. Also, the terminals themselves have resurfaced a lot of the terminals and made them a bit cleverer. So the combination of all those things, productivity has never been better as far as I can see. There's also been investment by the companies, been investment by the government as well in fixing up the ports, and it can only move forward. The amount of cargo that's been handled is doubled in 10 years, and they expect it to double again, not within 10 years, but within about five or six years. And the plans to make Melbourne the premier container terminal in Australia are, um, are well and truly in place. I also asked Big Bird about his job status. I'm permanent at the moment. I've just got put on the permanent roster quite recently. Um, After how many years? Well, 10 years permanent. They call it a permanent fixed roster. I was on a permanent roster before, but it was my hours were flexible. As I said before, the shipping, the volumes, are, there are peaks and troughs. They go up and down and uh, the requirements, they need the flexibility. But now I'm on a permanent fixed roster, so now I can look at my roster and say where I'll be in three months or six months. This is fantastic. Up until then, the week before last, I was uh, what was called a uh, variable salaried employee, and I was considered a permanent but with no fixed roster. I can make myself unavailable for certain shifts, and I would be guaranteed a certain amount of work. While this was good, the benefits of uh, being on the fixed salary are much better. You're guaranteed a wage, and you're guaranteed training in areas to make yourself more useful to the company. Dave Cushion makes some points about the role and effect of casualisation, not only on the wharfs, but also on Australian society more generally. 
Casualisation, I, I, I don't think it's a waterfront issue. I think it's a, an issue for the whole of society, you know. Uh, Australia is, uh, I think, a disgrace in the rate of casualisation. Sure, there's a, a place for, for casual work. There's people who want it, you know, there's students, uh, men, women who, who prefer that, older, younger, they have reasons for it. But I don't think that's what we're seeing here. I think we're seeing casualisation used as a way of driving conditions and wages down in this country. And uh, on on the waterfront, we've had a, we've had a big campaign. We've, we're doing successfully. We've got more permanent employees uh, employed over the last few years than we have had for a while. So we're effectively looking at how we deal with casualisation. We've actually... On some of the casual jobs, we've actually introduced it, so there's more permanency attached to those casual jobs. Uh, so we're really uh, looking at how we do it. In the terminals now, there's only two types of, of workers. One is a permanent worker, if you like, on a roster. The other is a permanent worker without a roster. So uh, we believe that people need... Well, they need the ability to, for instance, to get housing loans or loans to just run their lives, and it's very hard to do that if you're a casual employee. You are listening to Stick Together on the Community Radio Network. This week I'm playing part three of the documentary The Workplace Has Become a War Zone, Reflections on the Waterfront Dispute of 1998. Dave Cushion explains one of the main lessons many in the union movement have learnt from the Patrick's Dispute. We've actually got more people working on the docks now than we did have during the Patrick's dispute, so that's heartening. There's been changes on the docks. As a union, we've learnt lessons out of that about how we organise. We've learnt, obviously, valuable lessons of the need to spread out beyond your patch, if you like, to sink your roots deep within society, because that's where your members come from and you need to connect. This lesson has been learnt and moved upon by many in the union movement. The most obvious expression of this renewed insight is union solidarity, which is an emerging and it must be said largely successful tactic of building and marshalling community support for the union movement when it engages in industrial disputes. Watch this spot. There are moves underfoot to create new legislation to ban community support for the union movement. I talk with Dave Kerrin, the convener of Union Solidarity, about what the community assembly means and where the idea comes from. We believed that from the very beginning we needed to put in place a, an infrastructure that would enable the community to provide long-term support for workers in struggle if their unions were taken out of that struggle due to these, uh, these bad laws. So what's its historical genesis? It arose out of practice, the, certainly the MUA dispute and the, uh, the tremendous support that was uh, gathered together by the community to support the MUA in 1998. Prior to that, the, the deregistration of the BLF. Big Bird also pointed to where the union movement must go if it is to survive in the emerging and increasingly neoliberal terrain. Internationally, capitalism's gone global. Unionism is going global too, using the latest YouTube, internet, telephone hookups. It's all about linking people together. We're not looking for the easiest jobs in the world. We just want a good, decent living with decent conditions and a caring society, not being driven down to the lowest common denominator. Whether it is Howard or Rudd or someone else launching the next wave of attacks on the working class, our job is to remember what has happened, 
learn from our mistakes and organise, adding a sprig of imagination and a dash of humour and coming out proud and strong, and make the architects of injustice choke on their morning coffees. To finish up this discussion, I'll end with an insight worthy of some further consideration. Kevin Bracken. If you can see something wrong, whether it involves you or not, we have to actually speak up. You can't be just silent and let these things happen. Three CRs turn 40, and from Monday, 10th of October, right through to Saturday, 19th of November, we're celebrating. Join us on 3CR Breakfast from 8 until 8.30am, Monday to Saturday, as we delve into our rich 3CR archive and bring you half an hour of historic gems. So start your day with the sounds that built a station. 40 days of groundbreaking audio celebrating 3CR's 40 years of radical radio. Five, four, three... You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. A weak solidarity bricky team lister when the coalition of the Killick, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo judge W. Bash the workers, her most gracious majesty's home country, big supremo tiny plier, and our very own little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in the dark ages, pat themselves on the back and so admire their handiwork as they cherish the liberty, freedom and democracy, the liberation they have brought to the Middle East. It only took a few weeks for me to announce mission accomplished on that train killer thingy with the big sign, which thankfully wasn't an upside-down comic. And that renowned comic, the little bald-headed bloke commenting on the ongoing mopping-up operation involving only a few thousand deaths and injuries and displacements of the ever-grateful liberated people, told us, The problem is IS. Nothing whatever to do with the coalition of the killing, because IS wasn't even there when we invaded. Uh, Sorry, liberated. It it really wasn't. You haven't thought of visiting Mosul, Aleppo, all the areas involved in the mopping up operation to allow the people to thank you for what you've done for them? I'd be happy to talk to them via video link for no more than, say, $500,000. I really would. Following on from last week when we quoted the Nobel Committee displaying its long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work in an iron Luddite bias by unleashing all over the airwaves that anthem of the long-haired Luddites, the answer is blowing in the wind. Ignoring these short-haired, work-their-guts-out-for-all-of-us non-Luddite fossils, pointing to the truth about disastrous, costly renewables that was South Trublawasi. And this week, the fossils had even more cause to attack renewable energy when large parts of Melbourne were left in the dark for the second week in a row. No sooner back on than off again. Power blackouts during extreme weather, which is no longer extreme weather, which has nothing whatever to do with climate change because there's no such thing. But obviously the culprit must be renewables because the fossils explained that the blackout in South Tribaluasi was obviously caused by unreliable renewables and good, good coal would have kept flowing through those power lines lying limply on the ground next to the twisted pylons. So there's no doubt the Victorian blackout must have been caused by renewables. 
and the fossils must have remained silent about it because they're sick of their warnings blowing in the wind. And they know the opportunistic renewable Luddites would say, if you say renewables cause South True Blue Aussie, then fossils must have caused Melbourne, which the fossils know makes no sense at all, so don't give them the opportunity to spout such misleading nonsense. The perfect timing of the week award, just as the government brings in legislation to bolster the economy, and big supremo Malcolm Tunnabull assured us the get the evil unions jackboots con mission bill is all about the economy and nothing, absolutely nothing to do with evil union bashing. Not that bashing unions is evil, but bashing evil unions, if you follow, nothing to do with just as, just as, what better proof of the undermining the economy, attacking the economy role of evil unions than that an honourable dear baby Jesus senators good for the economy housing construction company, well for the past couple of years more a housing non-construction company, a good caring knows there's no such thing as class struggle employer now ex-senator Bob Bad Day, clearly said to the wall by the greed of the evil unions perfect timing if ever we needed proof that evil unions must be reined in, not as union bashing of course but for the good of the economy. For the good of, good for the economy companies like ex-senator for the dear baby Jesus Bobs. Destroyed by the greed of lazy avaricious workers and as all these true blue Aussies have suffered massive losses thanks to poor Bob's victimhood, Malcolm knows there is no need for any inquiry into the caring employers who have to suffer those who must be investigated, must be kept under control by the jackboots commission. Hundreds of union officials charged with breaking the law, cited by Malcolm and the team as proving the need for the Jack Boots Con mission. Yes, what have these evil criminals been charged with? Representing workers? Seeking wage increases? Raising health and safety issues? Recruiting members? Disrespecting caring employers? And similar heinous crimes? But, but, but that's what union officials have always done. It's their job. It's legal. Not anymore. Look, we are not union bashing. We are simply looking to boost the economy. We have no objection to union officials, evil, evil union bosses and evil officials doing their job as long as they don't break the laws we have introduced to prevent them doing their job showing just how evil these union officials are, and a good man like Bob said he'd do all he could for those he'd ripped off. Sorry, who'd lost their savings. I'll pray for them. He lifted all their worries off their shoulders, and same day all these crook casino people got arrested in China. Must be some extended criminal activity of the evil unions. I'm so worried. Big crook supremo Jamie Packer-Punch looks so worried. Uh, understandable, Jamie, you're worried about the fate of your workers. Come on, talk bloody sense. There, there's no shortage of bloody workers. Have you seen the share price? Nothing like a chip off the old. The True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review and Crook were getting the story back into perspective with yesterday's headline over Thursday's Crook AGM. Crook plays down profit impacts from China arrests, reflecting Jamie's caring concerns. And on the jackboots commission bill, that neutral all things to all people, especially caring employer people, Nick Xenophobe, not a grey hair on his very, very black modest head, Nick raised a serious concern about the legislation, showing he cares for workers, I hear. 
Well, not quite. Nick is concerned for poor caring employers who may be caught up. Again, I hear for underpaying, killing, injuring, unfairly dismissing, exploiting generally. No, no, that's all okay. The bill makes that all legal. No, Nick's concerned for caring employers who may get caught up by making concessions to the evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers. Why do we get the feeling Nick's vote can't be 100% relied on? Bit of furor in Canberra over this most useful of killing assets, the Deaf Adler. An asset Liberal Democrat Senator David laying them low says is essential to remove feral pests from society. So, so what ferals do you have in mind, David? Well, the obvious ferals are evil union bosses, evil union members, evil workers who are thinking of becoming evil union members, evil workers who may think that way, doll bludgers, pension sponges, anti-progress environment groups, in other words, the warmest. That kind of feral we need to eradicate to have a liberal, dumb society. Hear, hear. Hear, hear. Big Supremo Malcolm and his predecessor, tidy a bit more for the bosses, hear, heared. How dare you hear, hear, David un unheared. You ratted on me. No, I didn't. He did, Malcolm pointed at Tiny. I have been most grievously misrepresented, most grievously misrepresented. No, I didn't. He did, pointing at we-know-who. And let me add, Tiny added, one more feral to the list, him, meaning we-know-who. And I would add him, Malcolm pointed at Tiny again, showing there was a sort of agreement. But while the Caring Business Class Party was showing these small signs of disunity, it was all love and hugs and warm fuzzies and triumphant celebrations in the Socialist Party over the selection of Kimberly Kitching Cabinet to step into the Senate, where she, would, where she said she would continue the great work for Victoria of her predecessor Stephen Conman, extreme, extreme, extreme right-wing numbers person who nonetheless thinks Kimberly is too right-wing or perhaps weighed down the right by lots of baggage. But I thought if she is going to continue Stephen's great work, she won't have to do anything. And the week that was wants to scotch those silly stories that Kimberly wrote the votes for all the members of the selection panel on their behalf because they were too stupid to pass the vote test, even if the result shows they were. Let's make it clear, she has not been charged with any offence over her selection and she has the unflinching support of Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition who also gave his unflinching support to Kevin and Julia and Kevin. Little Billy got up in Parliament and attacked Malcolm for plotting against Tiny, and I thought, surely he'd have the decency to get someone else to launch an attack on someone for stabbing someone in the back. The hands dripping blood bit. But then Kimberly and her partner Andrew Lander, you in it, and Sophie and little Billy, I think that's her name, Sophie, are close, close friends. And finally, we can but imagine the empathy for the downtrodden which would dominate their dinner party conversations. Well, the word red would probably be discussed in some detail as they whip another cork out or unscrew another bottle. We unscrew the bottle and screw the workers. <laughs> they would have a really good laugh. Speaking of screw, Donald in the big debate.
Nah, not worth it. Good morning. Hi, this is Katie from Little Birdie and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We need your help to support public radio and your local music scene. Well, there you go. Kevin was talking about stabs in the back and uh, I guess that our next little sequence, which is about Corbyn, I spoke to uh, Rob, uh, Rod Quinn over in London about uh, the aftermath of the Corbyn vote for uh, UK Labor. Uh, that was a bit of a stab in the back, really. Or the front. Or the front, yeah, full front. <laughs> anyway, uh, he uh, gives us a little bit of an idea of uh, what uh, is going on in uh, London in and England in relation to Labor politics. You're on 3CR with Annie and Kim, and this is Solidarity Breakfast. So let's move straight on to what Mr Rod Quinn had to say. So it's very exciting, actually, isn't it, that Corbyn has been re-elected uh, as uh, Labor leader with a strong majority? Bigger majority than before. Much bigger. So what's the general feeling? Well, the feeling is there appears to be some cracking in the ranks of, the, of those who have rejected Corbyn, uh, there, are, there, there are some signs that uh, those that weren't ever reconciled to him or would never be reconciled to him are now having to face the reality of the fact that he, uh, that not just him as an individual, but that line of politics is, uh, is uh, it's there, it's established. It's interesting because... And they're going to have to follow it. Yeah, it's interesting much once he won... It's almost as if he dropped off the landscape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not so here. There is still the unrelenting attack on him from the media, including, of course, The Guardian, the last paper one would consider setting him up. But it's it's continuous. People like uh, Polly Toynbee, Nick Cohen, who runs a column in The Observer, which is the same stable as The Guardian, and um, Jonathan Friedland, Friedland uh, uh, just continuing his unremitting attacks. What they've been doing for quite a while is to accuse his supporters, or some of his most outstanding supporters, of being anti-Semites. That has worked for a while because they've had the momentum, for example, the group supporting him, the mass movement supporting him, has had to drop one of its leaders because of the, uh, the accusation of anti-Semitism. So instead of actually facing up to the fact that you are not, one is not an anti-Semite if one criticises Israel or Israel's actions, um, they are just bowing down to what the right are using as a, and so far quite effectively. It's almost impossible to pin anything at all of anti-Semitism on Corbyn himself. Uh, but, for example, one of... Uh, one of the leaders or one of the spokespersons for momentum and movement supporting him was Jewish herself. And has and I read it rather closely. There has been no overt anti Semitism. Uh, unless one accepts the criticism of Israel as anti Semitic. Now that's one thing that is persisting. 
and people are still able to say that Corbyn and his followers are anti-Semites and so on. They're still able to say that and almost get away with it. No, so that's that's one of the baneful effects since his uh, since his what, election, of course. The the uh, really important issues, are, of course, are to do with uh, job security, uh, the austerity measures, the dealing with the rampant financial uh, class that appears to just be able to run roughshod over everybody in the country. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, that's true. But what... Uh, the, the latest hullabaloo, of course, is over Brexit and how it's going to be handled. Now, the government, the Theresa May government, is playing its, its hand very, very secretly. They're arguing that they don't have to discuss what plans they have for Brexit, what long-term plans. Whereas some parliamentarians, certainly including some Tories, are arguing that it is parliamentary business. That, all right, the referendum has gone ahead. The majority of the British people, the very slim majority, have voted for Brexit. Uh, therefore, that can't be changed. But what should be changed is the attitude of the government that it's got to be publicised, that whatever plans they have for, for austerity, for uh, whatever trade relations are going to emerge, should be in the parliamentary sphere and should be discussed. It's Parliament's business. So far, the Tories have rejected the idea totally. There's, um, there's, so, a, there's an interesting thing coming out in here about her government, things like uh, her government deciding that it's OK for uh, its service people to basically what would appear to be perpetrate war, uh, war crimes uh, without any... Uh, because it's war, therefore we're allowed to do war crimes, basically. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. They can't, they can't really get away with that. But there are certain people who are arguing, yes, that we don't... that at war, the rules are different. Um, whereas at war, the rules are the bloody same, mass murder and so on. And there are certain things about war crimes that uh, the world generally recognises as such. And the Brits, British Army certainly carried out certain things during the Iraq war that uh, were plainly criminal. Uh, the murdering of, of the murdering torture of, of uh, prisoners and all the rest of it. That's certainly gone on. Does that, set the, does that set the tone of her government, her type of government? Look, it's very difficult to work out what tone the government does follow. She plays her cards close to her chest. Now, assuming that she has plans for Brexit or plans for her own style of government generally, which one assumes she would have, um, then... Nothing has been said. She clearly said, Brexit is Brexit and I'm going to pursue it and I'm going to make sure that we get the best, the best deal we can out of it. But at no stage have the details ever, ever been outlined or described. The three people responsible, of course, uh, are Brexiteers, <laughs> are Brexiteers 
The three of them are discredited. Liam Fox, for example, was thrown out of the government over his lies. Johnson, of course, is regarded as a buffoon. And Davies resigned over civil rights laws, resigned from the, the, the Tory cabinet years ago on that basis, uh, and has done bugger all about that ever since. So the three of them uh, had very... At first, they thought that Theresa May had said, all right, you support Brexit, go and do it. You, you take responsibility for it, and therefore nullifying them, embarrassing them, isolating them. But now, rather reluctantly, people are having to admit that she is actually a Brexiteer, and right up there with the best of them. Well, there's been this rather amusing thing on Facebook, well, amusing in a sort of a way, where someone's been going around to exactly these uh, politicians who uh, uh, supported Brexit, but who said that they were going to... Uh, Put all this money into the national health system as a, because of uh, Brexit, uh, asking them to sign a cheque, the cheque that they said that they were going to put into the national health. But of course, all of them think it's terribly amusing and avert their eyes. Yeah, they were telling lies. Yeah. Well, you, you, you've probably seen pictures of their of their uh, their battle bus during the referendum, which promised. Uh, £350 million pounds a week would be diverted from Europe and put back into the NHS. Firstly, the figures are very uh, very shaky, but secondly, they had no intention of following that through. The process of privatisation continues in the NHS. The standard of how everything is deteriorating in the NHS due to the massive cuts and, and, uh, and shortage of funding. No, that is one thing that has clearly not happened. Of course, the key one is migration. And now they're starting to say, well, we'll have to allow some in. So the whole attitude to immigration, which is one of the things that moved millions of people to vote for Brexit, is still very wobbly. They cannot, they cannot stop immigrants coming in and working. If the NHS uh, is going to work at all, it can only work with imported data, imported doctors, nurses, and all the rest of it. And that applies across the slate of a lot of industries and so on. Agricultural industry would crumble very, very quickly. Prices of food would skyrocket if they withdrew European labour from the, from, the, uh, from Norfolk and places like that. So well, now, uh, now that Corbyn is uh, back uh, in on steadier ground, what what's happening for Labor? As it, I mean, it's quite a long way away till the next election. So, what what's happening for the grassroots, and what's the strategy for Labor in the UK? Well, it's now it's still steadying itself, but see, it's still suffering from people like Mandelson, who only last week said that a Labour defeat would be good because it would get rid of Mandelson, as they would, would get rid of the Corbyn. Oh, for goodness sake. Now, instead of him being immediately expelled for calling for a Labour defeat, there's been no criticism at all. That sort of thing is still rumbling on. There are still people out there, people like Kinney and Mandelson, very, very much the old right wing, the old right guard, uh, still there, still having a voice when they had utterly no right to have a voice within the Labour Party. Mandel should have been expelled overnight, should have immediately been suspended. They've suspended 
people who are accused of anti-Semitism wrongly, why not su- suspend somebody that, that um, argues for a labor defeat? There's, that, there's, that sort of head-on collision has not yet occurred. Uh, and that, that applies also to the rearrangement of the shadow cabinet. Uh, some of these people are still there. Now, some are obviously competent people, but if there's any... If, if, if they criticise the existence or the possibility of Labour winning an election, that is expulsion stuff, and I'm the last one to call for people to be expelled, disciplined, or anything else. But in a case like that, they don't belong in the Labour Party. Well, there you go. <laughs> so if we want to talk knives... Uh, <laughs> drawing the lines. Drawing the line. That's right. Uh, that's what uh, one uh, Labour supporter in uh, England has been his reflections on the uh, Corbyn reinstatement as uh, the uh, head of the UK Labour team. And uh, there's still a fair, fair way to go before the next election in England. Well, I think it's interesting because actually the political situation is way more unstable in the UK than it is in the US. The US looks crazy, but actually they've got their favourite candidate, you know. Yeah, that's right. Now, so we'll go to the US and hear what uh, Vince Emmanuel has to say about the present state of affairs. Sort of. I don't know if you folks have like Jerry Springer or yeah, Maury Povich we did. shows. Right. So, I mean, it's, it, that's essentially what the conversation has turned into now. Mm. Well, they they record they played it live here. There was a right. great deal well, of interest. It was, it was one of the most watched TV events in the history of the United States. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, it was m- more people watched that than watched the Super Bowl, and that never happens. Yeah. Actually, it's interesting. Professional football, well, American football, professional American football numbers are down fifteen to twenty percent viewership this year. And the only thing people can think of is the election. So there's so many Americans tuning into the election simply, I mean, for many reasons, but there's tons of Americans who are tuning in to the elections just for entertainment value. That's how goofy the entire thing has become. The stuff that's coming out about Trump, I have a lot of different feelings about this. I mean, number one, of course. I mean, on the surface, it's ridiculous. It's it's lewd. It's uh, offensive. It's unacceptable. It's all of the above. But at the same time, of course, what's not what's missing from the conversation is a is a serious debate about the issues. So we have yet to really in this presidential race talk about the issues as much as we're talking about Trump as a sexual predator, which he could very well be. And of course, that should disqualify him for president. But that also brings up more deeper questions about our society, the kind of culture we're creating, so on and so forth. But, you know, and then at the same time, I mean, look at the cheap games that the Democrats are playing. This is truly the, the dangerous game. So while they're painting Trump in this negative light, which he should be painted in, the Clinton... And uh, the the Clinton campaign has been attacking Trump vis-a-vis a critique of Russia. So the idea is that Russia is behind the WikiLeaks email hacks. It's that Russia is uh, backing Donald Trump. It's that Russia has a vested interest in getting Donald Trump into office. And all of this, of course, is very dangerous 
because at the same time, of course, the United States and Russia are vying for uh, control in Syria. And of course, the United States and Iran and Saudi Arabia and, and those kinds of conflicts and ongoing tensions and so on and so on. So just to score cheap political points and feeding into this idea that we're in a new Cold War with Russia, the Democrats and particularly Clinton's campaign have taken to, uh, you know, likening Trump to a sort of Vladimir Putin puppet. Going back to something we talked about a while ago, which was that uh, given that Trump doesn't actually enjoy politics at all, he's just interested in uh, personal uh, aggrandizement and uh, power, uh, it really means uh, a little bit more about what the, the vice president that uh, select candidate, a candidate that he's got. Uh, and you were talking sure. about what that man is, what he stands for. Well, he's my, he was my former governor. Mm. So, so governors are like your premiers. Yeah. So he was my former premier. Um, so I lived under his madness, uh, I think for what, eight years now, six years. He, Trump's running mate, Mike Pence is as right wing, both economically and socially as you can possibly be. So while Trump is playing up this populist message, while Trump is also playing up sort of this quasi-isolationist message where he's questioning NATO, questioning whether the United States should be engaged in these different conflicts around the world, questioning whether the United States should be extending its military arm around the world, his running mate and who many would assume if they were to by a miracle get into the White House, which is looking even less and less likely as the days go along – um, he would be playing sort of a Dick Cheney role. You know, Mike Pence would be calling the shots. Mike Pence, someone who's spent time in Capitol Hill, someone who's spent time in the U.S. Congress as a representative, then as a premier, now as a vice presidential candidate to Donald Trump, has tons of connections within the sort of political elite establishment within the United States, within the conservative religious establishment. He's an evangelical Christian. He has extremely right-wing social views, including but not limited to uh, the idea that evolution isn't real, the idea that climate change doesn't exist, the idea that the apocalypse will someday come by the wrath of God, and also enacting laws such as banning Planned Parenthood facilities, so facilities for women to get abortions, people to get treated for sexually transmitted diseases, and so on, but also enacted a law and signed a law that the legislature passed in the state of Indiana that requires funerals for fetuses that were aborted. Oh, God. So you, you heard that correctly. So whoever is listening to this, and I chuckle because Okay, look, of course these issues are serious, but I'm sorry, folks, you know, for anyone who finds that offensive. I, I've, I've lived under this gentleman. Um, my female friends also have to laugh about some of this because there's nothing else. I mean, what else can you do? How significant do you think is this business about uh, Republicans, a, a vast amount of Republican paralytes saying that turning their back on Trump? Does that mean anything? It is a big deal. I, Trump would have a much better chance at winning if he did have the Republican establishment behind them. They have 
a ton of fundraising resources and they have a ton of political and media resources that they could be utilizing, but they're not utilizing them because they're scared of this guy. So, okay. And then it really would make, it would make a significant difference. And the next thing is he apparently said some scathing things about Buffett. Now that seems like a, a, a wrong move on his part. People like Warren Buffett, I actually have more respect for people like Donald Trump, to be quite honest with you. I mean, if we're just being honest here, I I actually have more respect for Donald Trump. Uh, Why, if someone might ask? Because I think he's more honest uh, than someone like Warren Buffett. Again, Warren Buffett wants to pretend during the day like we can use the market system, the capitalist, global capitalist system uh, that and make our billions of dollars, but then at night we can give some money to the poor. We can pretend like we're these really socially conscious people. I mean, at least people like Trump are just sort of out in the open. They're like, look, the system is about making money. It's about fancy cars. It's about jet planes. It's about mansions. Um, objectifying you know, it's women about as objects. Objectifying women or whatever. But I mean, if you ask the average male in the United States, what do you think being rich is all about? That is actually what they think. Yeah, that's it's right. not Warren Buffett. You know, they're not thinking like, oh, I want to get rich so I can give more money to the poor. I mean, get the hell out of here. Trump's supporters median income was about seventy two thousand dollars a year for Bernie supporters. It's about I want to say sixty one thousand dollars a year. And for Hillary Clinton supporters, it was like fifty six, fifty five thousand dollars a year. So actually, the people who are the poorest in the United States actually supported or at least those who are voting, actually supported Hillary Clinton more than they supported Bernie Sanders and more than they support Donald Trump. Now, those numbers change when you look at the different demographic numbers. Of course, women overwhelmingly support Clinton and men overwhelmingly support Trump. There was an interesting map that just came out that showed the amount of states that Trump would win if only women voted. And I think it's like 12 out of the 50 states. It would be an absolute rout for Hillary Clinton. If only men could vote, I think Hillary Clinton win won like 12 states as well, and it wow. would be an absolute rout for Donald Trump. So if you look at the differences uh, demographically, it's a drastic – like for black people, 95 percent of black people, maybe some polls have 98 to 99 percent of black people who support Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump – And, of course, for Hispanic people, that number is 70 percent, 75 percent or more. And it's the same, actually, for Asian Americans as well. So white – the only thing that you could – so if you were to looking to say, okay, so who are Trump supporters? The only thing you could say is they're more than likely white and they're more than likely men. Well, there you go. Did you need a poll for that? (laughs) Probably not. Well, it's been a fantastic show. We talked about Polar Fresh Strike. Yep. um, And another strike from, well, lockout from 1998, the waterfront dispute. Yep. And then on to the UK. Yep. And then the US. Yeah, see, we've been all around the world. So that's that's us. That's uh, Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. We'll catch you next week. Yeah. No, well, two weeks Oh, um, two weeks. I just got really enthusiastic. That's right. And uh, we, Lalitha will be here next week. And after that, uh, we will go and uh, have a chat with uh, Dr. Noah Pasil again about the world. Uh, so that's something for you to look forward to.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.